We are halfway through our sermon series on the Nicene Creed. Today's part of the creed is, I believe that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And related to that, I wanted to read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God <coughs> and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says that all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes the angels his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. And we pray for this, your spirit, Lord, to work on us now as we hear this. Do mighty things now. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> Thus far in the Nicene Creed, we have, uh, we have stated our belief that, uh, stated our belief about things that were before our time and that are beyond our world. So the Creed up to this point has been looking back at history, looking at certain historical events that we believe really happened, and we believe they have a certain significance, Jesus' death on the cross, for example. But not just things before our time, we've also been looking at things beyond our world. You know, when you say stuff like, God from God, that Jesus Christ was begotten of the Father before there were before there was time, and we're just we're talking here about stuff that's kind of like beyond us. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. It's the godness of God, and all that's been very exciting to think about. But now, at this point in the creed, it's as if two hands—if I can picture it that way—two hands drop down. One of the hands is in our past, the other hand is in our future. And between these two hands, they hold our, our life now. He ascended into heaven. That's the hand in our past. He will come again in glory. That's the hand in our future. And between these two great realities is the world you and I are living in this afternoon. This is where we live. This is where our story is happening. And when we say credo, you know the word creed comes from that Latin word credo, which just means I believe. When we say credo, I believe to what I just said. He ascended. He's coming again. That is called situational awareness. 
How many of you have heard the term situational awareness? Do you know what it is? It's, it's really complicated. It's being aware of your situation. I mean, you know, don't overthink it. <laughs> have you ever met someone who is, does not have situational awareness? Someone who just does not clue in to what is actually going on around them in their situation? You know, people like this can be just useless. If it's the eighth inning and your outfielder is up having bro time at the beer counter, he is useless to you. You want to say, dude, we are in a game. You, you're, you're, you're not aware of the situation. Obviously, a lack of situational awareness can not just make you useless, it can get you killed. You know, you don't want your kids, when they're behind a wheel, lacking situational awareness. You can get run over out there. If you do not understand the situation that you are actually living in, you can end up acting in a way that is actually against what this situation calls for. I mean, think about me being in somebody else's house. Situational awareness enables me to act in a way that is sort of in the flow of the situation. I don't want to act against what this situation calls for. I don't want to be, you know, in my lack of having a clue, rummaging around in somebody else's closet. There are certain ways I should behave because this is not my house. Now, you can live, people do live, as if some other reality is reality. I remember very well the day the little neighborhood girl named Michelle decided that her reality was that our refrigerator was her refrigerator. And she just walked into our house and started rummaging in the refrigerator. And my mother is usually a very sweet, calm lady. And she was surprisingly firm in helping little Michelle understand reality, real reality. And that's how it is. You can pretend like some other reality is reality, but at some point, real reality is going to assert itself, rather like my mom. And the real reality right now is that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. He is ruling the world you live in. He is ruling your life, and he is coming again. That's what's up. What does it mean to have situational awareness of this? Well, I want to begin by just taking a few seconds with the, the, these two poles that we live between. He ascended, he's coming again. He will come again. And we're, I just want to start by thinking about what it means that he ascended. I mean, ascend is not a word we use a lot in daily life. It just means he went up. Uh, he went up into heaven. And to understand why that was even a, th a thing, like why, you know, if Jesus was going to be a king, why not just, you know, put a crown on his head and get on with it? Well, it's interesting to think about, and you would only know this if you read your Bible, God always intended human beings to rule not just the earth. That, by the way, you can still see, even though people are sinners. Do you ever have moments when you're looking at something and you just realize human beings are unbelievable what they can do in ruling the earth? Like when I drive the Throg's Neck and I look over at Manhattan, the skyline on a clear day, I, I'm just, I, it really takes my breath away. Human beings, when they are given jurisdiction over something, they can, you know, just do awesome things with it. Uh, I felt that way looking at the Parthenon in, in person. It was just hard to take in. God always intended humans to rule the earth, but he also, if you can imagine this, he intended us to rule the heavenly spiritual realms. And there are spirit realms. You know, this is not a very, very modern thing to say, but in reality, even as you and I sit here, there is a thickly populated realm of spirit beings. Another dimension of reality, we just don't see it. And Adam began, you might remember the language of Psalm 8. Adam originally was made a little lower, Psalm 8 says, than those heavenly beings. And he was crowned with glory and honor. It was his place to rule the earth at that time. 
But as we've seen over the last few weeks, it turned out that Adam, our first, the first uh, human, he would not obey God even when he was just ruling the visible world. He was absolutely not ready for anything grander than that. He wouldn't even obey God in ruling the world as we know it down here. And so we had to wait through history for the true and better Adam, right? The, the true man, we know him as Jesus, the Messiah. And as we saw last week, he, as the, the last Adam, he's called in the Bible, the last one we need, he's the perfect Adam, he obeyed God perfectly. He resisted that serpent, that physical incarnation of the evil spiritual power that hates God and hates human beings, and Jesus resisted that serpent. He, he eventually crushed that serpent. And so for that reason, the Bible says Jesus was given all authority, and you notice the language he uses when he tells his disciples this. He says, all authority has been given to me in what? Heaven and earth, right? It's both. Not just on earth, but he was given all authority in the heavenly realms. And our text here in Hebrews 1 tells us that same thing in a slightly different language. He sat down. This is a relaxed posture of one who is absolutely sovereign. He sat down, but he did not sit down on earth, you know, in some thr on, on some throne somewhere in the world. He sat down with God on his throne. Now, God, you know, doesn't have a body and therefore does not have a physical throne, but Jesus is with God in the position of God's rule. And he was given all creation to rule. And he rules all of creation in heaven and earth, not just as God, for he is God, but also as man, for he is to this day fully man. And so our text, this explains Hebrews 1. When I was a young man, I remember reading Hebrews 1 and thinking, I have no idea why this writer opens this letter by talking about why Jesus is more, you know, superior to angels. Who cares? Well, this is quite important if you understand how much authority angels in history have had over earthly things. But this text tells us that angels serve Jesus. And other places, we are told that even those spirit princes, as they're described in the Old Testament, certain spirit princes who deceived and dominated the nations after Adam, the first Adam, rebelled, even those spirit princes, we're told, are now subject to Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1. He has been seated far above. I love that. You know, not just slightly above, far above all rule and all authority and all dominion and power, right? Absolutely above it all. That is our present situation. Jesus is seated. He still is seated. We live in a creation right now that is ruled not only by the creator, but by Christ. Christos, that Greek word for Messiah, God's king. And uh, Paul tells us in Colossians 1, that was always God's plan. God, in fact, the, the language is that he made all things for Christ. Like in the very beginning, God was making the world, the spirit realms and the earthly realms, he was making this for his son. With a plan, Paul also says in Colossians 1, with a plan ultimately, after human rebellion, to reconcile all things to himself through Christ especially in, in, at the cross. God is reconciling the world to himself. Things in heaven, Paul says, and things on earth. So that, this, is, this is the reality that is basic to our Christian imagination. When you look out at the world and you're like narrating the world in your head, this is bedrock for us as Christians. Jesus is seated. And it's not just, you know, for those of you who are younger people, maybe engaging some of the philosophies of your time, this isn't just a true reality 
we believe it because it's true, it's also really comforting because what this tells us is this universe that you and I are living in has a Lord and the Lord is good. Does that comfort you? I mean, sometimes I let myself just run down what it must be like to live in some of the rival imaginaries of our time. You know, there are people who really believe that God doesn't rule, Jesus doesn't rule, chance rules. That basically all there is is matter and energy, and by some whoppingly lucky roll of the cosmic dice, we have this life that we live. And if you really think about, if that's your imaginary, that's how you look at the world, what that means is that literally everything that happens in life is just chemical reactions. That's all there really is. And a chemical reaction, actually, brothers and sisters, can never be good or evil. A chemical reaction is just a chemical reaction. It's just stuff doing stuff. That's all it is. A chemical reaction can never arrive at anything we could call truth. Matter and energy have no meaning. They just are. They have no purpose because for any purpose to exist, there has to be a purposer. They just do their thing. And the reality is if chance rules, instead of Jesus ruling, you are worthless driftwood in a cosmos that has no beginning, no end, no story, no meaning, no value, no matter how much it might feel otherwise to you, you are delusional. You are driftwood. Deal with it. And in fact, it's refreshing sometimes to hear atheists, just, people who don't believe in God at all, just come right out and say it. Your life has no meaning whatsoever. And all that mental health stuff where you kind of like feel this internal pain, like, I, you know, I need to have value and my life needs to have meaning, it doesn't. So, like, deal with it. It's really a very bleak view. Although I think now there's probably a different imaginary that is equally bleak, but it's probably more popular now, and that is it's not, you know, Jesus certainly isn't Lord. Maybe we don't think so much about chance being ultimate, but we think that human choice is what rules. The world is what you make of it. Reality is what you make of it. Nothing is good unless you decide it's good for you. Nothing is true unless you decide it's true for you. Nothing has meaning or value unless you decide that it has meaning or value. And this sounds very empowering, like, you know, we don't need God. We can just do our human thing, make our own choices. But it's really amazing to stop and think about it. If nothing is good or true or meaningful or valuable unless you decide it is, then you have to spend your entire life making choice after choice after choice, brothers and sisters, without any actual basis for your choice. You don't choose something because it's good. It's only good if you choose it, which means why did you choose it? I don't know. I just chose it because if I chose it for any reason other than that I chose it, I'm not being free in my choices. This is just dismal. And it's worse than that. In a world of, what, 10 billion people now, if every single person is deciding for themselves what is good and true and meaningful and valuable, the only reason this world does not erupt in literally dystopian violence, as we all battle for what we believe individually is good, the only reason that does not happen is because we know deep down that some things should be chosen because they are good and they are true and they have meaning and they have value even if that is against my feelings and even if that is against societal consensus. Jesus is Lord, so I should love you even if you are an untouchable to me or an untouchable to society because Jesus is Lord. 
Yes? These other rival, these other imaginaries are just comfortless. But he ascended. He is Lord. The universe has a Lord, and he's good. And he will come again, the second pole. Because what makes it hard to believe that Jesus is seated right now, ruling everything, is that the world doesn't look like it. Does it? Doesn't look like it to me. But that's why we need to know that Jesus is not only the seated Lord, he is the coming judge. I don't really know what this will look like. There's some crazy language in the Bible that pictures it for us. The heavens fleeing away. A rider on a white horse conquering and he will conquer. A sword proceeding from his mouth, smashing his enemies like clay jars lightning from his face. There are some very, very scary pictures of this one coming in judgment. And people mock it. This is easy to meme. And as much as it is caricatured and memed by scoffers, oh, haha, you're those people who believe, you know, huh, he's going to come and judge, you know, gives preachers lots of hellfire and brimstone to trot out in the pulpit, very stirring stuff. But for all the mockery, if you really think about it, this is the desire of nations, isn't it? This is what people really long for. Because there is deep in the human heart, if you dig long enough, you will find it, there is a deep, deep longing in the human heart for things to be put right. This is why I think a lot of young people are attracted to radical movements, because radical movements with their utopian fantasies give you the idea that if you just pull together and work hard, you can really make a better world, and we will long for a better world. We see the world as it is, and we long for it to be put right. On a more individual level, this is why people talk at funerals about, oh, he, she, they're in a better place. This always kind of makes me crazy a little bit at funerals. People that don't believe there's a God, don't believe there's a heaven or a hell, will stand there and with a straight face, oh, my, my loved one is in a better place. What the hell does that even mean? What better place? You don't even believe in it. But I think a lot of people today actually have just kind of slid into a, a somewhat smug, cynical nihilism about all of this. You know, the world is a mess, and we're not like those stupid people over there who somehow are blind, willfully blind to the fact this is really all going to smash. So bleep it. It's just going to smash. Life doesn't really, there's no happy ending to this. And that kind of cynical kind of nihilism actually is a way of escaping the burden of hope, because hope is a burden. It's a way of escaping any responsibility for things. We can just be cynical. Ah, it's just all going to smash. Nothing really matters. But in fact, the Bible tells us, Christ and Christ alone has authority from God, from the maker of heaven and earth, to do exactly what our hearts long for. He will come again to put all things right to judge the living and the dead, and his sweet kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy will have no end. Now, that reality that Christ is coming, he is coming, as surely as you and I are sitting here right now, he is coming, that will, pr will probably not terrify Jesus' enemies until they meet him in judgment. You know, you can try to tell people, you know, Christ is coming, you should shake in your shoes, and they will laugh at you. They might need to see it to believe it. But I'd like to ask you guys, how do you feel about the fact that Christ is coming? Again, in glory, to judge the living and the dead. What, what are your actual feelings about that? And I think the answer to that probably depends on your situational awareness. Because if today, 
October 1st, 2023, you love the seated Jesus. You love the fact that he is Lord. You love this Christ. You love his kingdom. You are praying for it to come. You love justice. You hate evil. The terrible things that happen under the sun weary your heart and soul. Then for you, you just can't wait for this. This is your hope. You like creation, Paul says in Romans. You groan for this. Please, Lord, put all things right. Do it now. Do it ultimately. And you're not groaning because you want to float off into some, you know, cloud-like existence where you just, as we often say, you know, strum your harp and feel a warm glow for eternity. No, you're, you are hungering and thirsting and groaning for a new body in a totally healed world where both you and your environment are well. <laughs> no sickness, no weariness, no pain, no evil, no sin, no divisions, just love with God and humans and all of creation. That final judgment for you is coming home. Any of you who are my age or older have times in your adult life when you just wish, you feel this weird, undefined sense of homesickness. You just wish so much you could go home and you realize you don't have a home. This is your home. And when you're that sort of Christian, it impels you to work single-heartedly throughout your life because you want to hear that beloved master, Jesus, who died for your sins. He is so merciful and gracious, but you want to hear him say these words, well done. Well done, Ben. That's what I want to hear. Not because I deserve it, but because he has done the work in me and covered my sins. I want to live for that. But you know, for some churched people, it must be said, I think the coming of Jesus the future coming of Jesus actually prompts feelings that are somewhere between vague uneasiness and utter irrelevance. There are lots of people in churches who are so, some of you I think are probably in this category, you are so unsure of your Lord's love for you now, you don't even like approaching him now, let alone face to face. And you just need to know, like in bucket loads, how much your Lord loves you. So you look forward to meeting him. And there are other churched people, and I think it must be said of some of us, what we honestly want, if we kind of don't play the church game for a minute, what we really want, we want money, we want pleasure, and we want status, and we want it here and now. We want and love money and pleasure and status more than we love God whose gifts these are. Wealth is his gift. Pleasure is his gift. Even any kind of status in your life is his gift. But we love these things more than we love God. And because of that, we either rather dislike the thought of God th through Jesus judging how we have used his gifts. That is not a comforting thought for some of us. Or worse, we just never even think about it. I have, in 20 years of ministry, had the very odd experience, and it is very odd, of watching professing Christians live as if Christ is not coming. They never give it a thought, because they're just completely absorbed in the here and now. Now let me say something about our life between these two poles. He ascended, he's coming again. This will probably be the strangest thing I say today, because it's gonna touch you. Speaking of situational awareness, do you know the Bible says that even as Jesus right now is seated with 
God, you are seated with him. What does that mean? It means that as Jesus right now is ruling heaven and earth, God has given you a seat next to Jesus. Now, you're not there in the body, but in your spiritual connection to Jesus, you actually are with him, and God has given you a place with Jesus in that place of rule. And it's as if God is saying to us, you, you, by name, come here, come sit. I want you to sit next to Jesus as he's looking out over heaven and earth, which is his realm. Because this is how you need to start looking at things. I want you to sit here with Jesus, and I want you to look at heaven and earth, and I want you to look with Jesus. What does he see? What is he interested in? Because this is how you need to start looking at things, because you are one of his brothers, you are one of his sisters, and you're going to rule heaven and earth with him. So you need to learn to look at things this way. This is not a power trip. You know, I can imagine somebody being like all nervous, like, oh, you know, I could give a person a very fat head. Well, no, because we are being trained to rule as we are with Christ, setting our hearts with him, setting our minds with him. We are being trained to rule, true, but we are being trained to rule as Jesus rules, to rule through self-sacrificing love, for example, overcoming evil with good, not with violence, being very patient, because our Lord is very patient. But it is our mission, brothers and sisters, with Jesus to pray down and to work for the coming in this world of his righteousness and his peace and his joy, which is what the Bible calls the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is your mission. That is my mission every day. And I want to just ask you all, as you're with Jesus, he rules and he wants you to look at the world through the eyes of, from that perspective of his rule, and your mission is to pray your kingdom come, Lord, and to work for it in the world. What does that mission look like on the ground? And I just want to say, and I'll be brief, just I think it looks like at least two things. This is what your life every day is spent doing on that mission. One of them is, is forsaking sin. Forsaking sin. Because here's, here's what the Lord's been working on with me recently. As you sit with Jesus, right, your heart and your mind are lifted up to him. And you're praying for his kingdom to come. You're praying for his righteousness and peace and joy to come. And you're just thinking about how might Jesus have me to work for his kingdom in the world, to work for righteousness, to work for peace, to work for joy. It is going to become obvious to you, my brother, my sister, that there are some things in your life that just need to stop. Just need to stop. If that's how you look at the world, you're going to realize there's some stuff, it just needs to go. And I am not just talking about obvious stuff. This Jesus that you're sitting next to hates pornography. Don't look at it again. It is that simple. Stop. But I'm not just talking about the obvious stuff. Drunkenness is obvious. If you're getting drunk, misusing God's gifts to blast yourself out of your mind, you are, Jesus, this is not what it looks like when Jesus rules. Stop, just stop. That stuff is like straightforward. But there's so much more that you realize, you know, because I love this Lord, this is not, this is not his kingdom coming. This is, this is the very opposite of his kingdom coming. And there's other things. You just realize, I just need to stop. I need to just stop this. Walk away from it. Stop complaining. Just stop complaining. 
Stop trying to control your spouse, your kids. Stop trying to control them. Some of you are way over the line. You're way beyond discipline and instruction. You are trying to control your husband, your wife, your kids. Stop. You can't do it. You're trying to play Jesus. Just stop. It offends him when you try to control people. (laughs) Stop spending so much money because he hasn't given it to you to spend. For some of us, you need to stop making so much money. Do you know why you need to stop making so much money? Because all that money you're making is not worth what it is doing to your household spiritually. Stop working. Go home. Less money is more from Jesus' perspective. It might mean just stop having your phone all the time. Just stop. Quit talking about it. Just stop having it all the time so you can serve the Lord. Stop skipping worship so you can do your own thing on the Lord's Day. Just stop doing it. Go to worship every time because Jesus. Stop being more concerned about your looks than your character. Stop being more concerned about other people's looks than their character. If when you look at someone you want to start dating or have a relationship with, the only thing you think about is their looks, Jesus would turn to you and say, my brother, my sister, do you realize man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. So stop just looking at looks. There's more to look at. Stop silently judging people that you're not willing to help. Just stop. Stop ignoring the widows and the fatherless. Jesus says true religion is ministering to widows and fatherless, so stop ignoring them, etc., etc. So some things just need to go, and it's very simple in a way, like it can be hard, and, you, and as you struggle with this, and I certainly do, I've got stuff in my life, I know Jesus has said, it's got to go, Ben, and I'm really struggling. If you cannot stop, and sometimes you realize, I just can't get there on my own. Brothers and sisters, you need with some urgency today to go ask for help. There is no excuse for not doing this. This is what the church is for. And if we're going to come every Sunday and play a game of impressing each other, who are we kidding? Not Jesus. If you've got things in your life you know don't please the Lord and you can't deal with them alone, go find a brother or sister to help you. Amen? This is the church. Yes? Or we're playing games. But it isn't just forsaking sin. It's also developing skill. Because there are so many good things to do. You know, so many ways to work for righteousness and justice and peace and joy. There's just so many good things to do. And so life with Christ is this constant adventure in skill building. Because I have lots of good things I can see that need to be done, don't always have the skills, so I'm building skills. And these can be all kinds of different skills. Maybe they're intellectual skills. There might be stuff you just realize, I just, I don't know a lot of stuff. I, I need to know more. Or I need to learn critical thinking so I can help people discern what is actually true and freeing and what is false and enslaving. Those are intellectual skills. Maybe they're emotional skills. It is a skill to be able to rule your feelings. To be able to have feelings that are very intense and actually rule them. That is especially a skill we have to learn once certain feelings become physically instinctive. Anxiety is like this. Anger is like this. And you can train the skill of being able to manage those. And you can help other people develop that skill. Or relational skills. Having good manners is a skill. Being able to carry a conversation well is a skill. De-escalating a fight, a conflict, is a skill. Many of us find ourselves thrown into parenting and trying to have friendships in the I world. 
post-digital revolution, and we have quickly realized there is no playbook for this, and we don't have the skills. No one's ever learned the skills. No one can teach us the skills. We need to learn these skills together. These are relational skills. And finally, practical skills. How to manage resources well, like money, like time. How to build things that contribute value in the world. How to fix things so you can help people when stuff gets broken. How to beautify things, because it just brings joy and shows people God's glory in, in the world. And you can very quickly see, as you're working on developing skills, you can very quickly see why God said, when he sent human beings on their original mission, that it's not good to be alone. Developing skills is something we do together. And I think this is why the writer of Hebrews later in this letter says, let us think about, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christ is coming. So stir each other up to love and good works and to skills. Help each other with this. And brothers and sisters, I, I must say, it, this is difficult to do when Christians are too busy making sure that they and their children are good Americans they're too busy making sure that they and their kids are good Americans, successful Americans, to really invest time in learning and growing together with other saints. That is a problem. Too busy being successful Americans to really put in the time to learn and grow with other saints how to do good works together. And you can see the generational effects of this. It is the saddest thing in my pastoral ministry because if children get all of their goals and their skills given to them by people outside the body of Christ, their life goals and their life skills are all from outside the body of Christ, they are not going to feel much sense of kingdom mission with the body of Christ. Why would they? And in its most tragic form, I have watched, in my many now years of ministry, watched kids grow up in Christian homes where their parents raised really successful Americans. These kids are making really good money. They are climbing the social ladder. They are success stories, and in New York, no less. And they don't have the slightest interest in Jesus, and but for God intervening, they're going to spend eternity apart from the Lord. And the parents seem somehow to think this was good investment. We need to be together, stirring up love and good works. Miles Wernz wrote this this week, and I'll pretty much wrap up with this. He said, Friendship is not just seeing the good together and staying together, but propelling each other toward what is good. Friendship is the hard conversations that in their friction promise to make us whole if they don't undo us. The submission of our egos to one another in the hopes that we will be more of what we should be if we let go of the desire to be alone. Friendship is more than presence. It's the possibility of holiness. And yet friendship lies fallow in our age, not because it is undesired, but because we have structured our lives such to make friendship really hard to maintain. Well, I've stressed today our activity, our activity in Christ's present kingdom. It's a wonderful place to live and grow together with, under his lordship and together with his people. But I do want to stress that our work in this kingdom is possible only because someone else is very actively working 
The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the, it is the Spirit's working, which is the only reason that we can work for that righteousness and peace and joy at all. And next week, we're going to talk about, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. But for now, Lord, we thank you that you have ascended and that you are seated and that you are coming again. And we pray that our lives will be framed by that and filled, our imaginations filled with that, and we will do many good works in your name together for your glory. In Jesus we pray, amen.